The story of Guy de Corvo. The night was bitterly cold and snow was on the ground, but most of the people streaming out of the church were talking happily. Whether clutching lamps or trusting to the moonlight, they were feeling good. The midnight mass was over, and duty done, everyone in LA could get back home to their warm fires and look forward to the feasting that would start tomorrow. A group of boys and young men sat around a fire just outside the church playing dice, while another group were busy organising a big Sewell match for the following day. Neighbours boasted to each other about what they had waiting for them to eat for Christmas, whether that was beef or bacon or chicken, or for the lucky few, a partridge or a goose. Whatever dead animal it came from, everyone was having meat tomorrow, and everyone's mouths were already watering at the thought of it. There was one person, though, who didn't seem to be joining in the general merriment. Whenever the neighbours saw her, they tamed their smiles and put out a hand to touch her gently on the arm or the shoulder. Some gave her a quick embrace. All offered condolences, all their thoughts and prayers, all asked how she was doing. Then, without really listening to the answer, they all hurried away to talk to someone else about beef or chicken or dice or who the boy bishop might be this year. We're all thinking of you, Elisana, said one neighbour in a kindly tone, before hurrying away to continue her conversation about how much she could use the leftover goose fat for over the next few weeks. Once, Elisana caught the eye of a young man who was waving a curved sewel stick around in the air, already practising for tomorrow. When he saw her, he hesitated and lowered the sewel stick for a moment, but she hastily lowered her eyes and turned away, and he shrugged it off and went back to his friends. An older woman, just as distanced from the joyful crowds, watched her without approaching her. No one approached this other woman with a pat on the arm or an embrace. She kept her distance from everyone and slipped off into the night alone. Meanwhile, Elisana made her slow, sad way through the streets to a handsome house on the edge of town. Her servants had gone ahead of her, so there was a lamp lit in the doorway, ready and waiting. All through the hallway and into the bedroom, the Christmas candles caught the glisten of the holly that had been strung along the ceilings and the banisters, and all around the four posts of the bed. There was no mistletoe, though. There would be no kisses this year. Although the fire was still lit, Elisana shivered all over as she prepared for bed. Every muscle in her body tensed up as she slipped beneath the covers and stared wide-eyed at the dying embers of the fire. Sleep would not come. Perhaps, perhaps tonight would be different. She could almost believe it. She had almost convinced herself that the Christmas feast had driven it away and that everything would be all right now. But just as she was almost able to fall asleep, it happened again. It started out as a low moan, just like the moans he made as he was dying. Elisana was lying on the very edge of the bed, turned towards the room, but she could hear the sound coming from right behind her, and something like a cold draught on her back. From the empty other half of the bed, the moaning became louder and louder. She stuffed her fingers in her ears and wept, but nothing would drown it out. Then it became no longer a moan, but a name. Elisana, his voice cried out, over and over again. Elisana! 
was the same way he had cried out not long before he died. And so it went on for hours, the moaning which sometimes became a wailing, and then the cries of Elisana, Elisana. As the sun rose, finally she could take it no longer. She left the bedroom and fled to the kitchens to sit by the big fire and warm herself with a mug of hot wine. Early in the morning, on the 27th of December, Johannes Jean Gobi, the prior of the Dominican Monastery of Alais, was awoken even before matins by a woman pounding on the door of the monastery and yelling loudly for him. By the time he got to the door, the whole monastery was up and in a state of confusion. Woman, Brother Jacques was shouting through the door, go back to your home. Whatever you have to say, you can say it in the morning in a more appropriate venue. Tell it to your confessor. I can't, came the woman's voice from the other side of the thick door. I can't go home. Please, you have to help me. Let her in, ordered Gobi. Standing shivering on the doorstep was Elisana, the widow of Guy de Corveau, who had died only a couple of weeks earlier. She was hastily dressed, her hair stuffed messily under her veil, her cloak thrown over her. She was weeping, which was not especially surprising in itself, but it seemed to the prior that they were tears of pure terror more than sorrow. "'Please, please help me!' she sobbed as two of the brothers led her to a bench to sit down. "'It's my husband!' Elisana, your husband, has passed over, said Brother Jacques, patronisingly. I know that, she snapped, but I can still hear him. You mean in a dream? asked Brother Matthias. No, I have been awake all night, cried Elisana, and every night since he died. Every night is the same. I hear moaning from the bed from the very spot where he died, and then he calls my name just as he did in his last hours. It goes on for hours and hours and I cannot sleep. I can hear him next to me in the bed. This is some kind of practical joke, sniffed Brother Jacques. It is not a joke, cried Elisana in frustration. Hush, hush both of you, said Gobi. Elisana, I believe you and I want to try to help you. Go home and we will come to you tonight and speak with this apparition, whatever it is, whether ghost or demon, and if we possibly can, we will help you. That night, Jean Gobi and three of the brothers solemnly made their way to Elisana's home and up to her bedroom, equipped with lanterns, the prior carrying the body of Christ on his person to protect against demons. Elisana had been persuaded, much against her will, to return to her bed, since they weren't sure whether the spirit or demon, or whatever else it might be, would appear if she wasn't there. She sat in the bed now, fully dressed, due to the presence of four clergy in her bedroom, but shaking with fear. As the night grew deeper, the prior led the brothers in reciting nine lessons on the subject of death and the fate of the soul afterwards. The fire slowly started to die down, but their lanterns held strong. Suddenly, Gobi felt something invisible pass in front of him, a movement in the air with no apparent cause. Then a low moaning sound was heard from the bed, from the empty space next to where Elisana sat bolt upright, clutching the covers to her chin. There! There! she cried, pointing to the other side of the bed. Can you see anything, madame? asked Gobi. 
No, she admitted, but I can hear him. It's my husband. He's dying all over again. We can hear him too, confirmed Gobi. Then he raised his voice and spoke loud to address the whole room. I conjure you by the infinite power of Almighty God, by the Holy Trinity, by the passion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, I conjure you and I command you to stay in this place and answer any questions I put to you. Gladly came the voice. It sounded stronger now, less tortured and more human and familiar. Who are you? asked Gobi. I am Guy de Corvo, came the answer. Still no one in the room could see anything, but the voice continued to come from the space in the bed while Elisana wept quietly on the other side. Are you a good spirit or a bad spirit? asked Gobi. A good spirit, said the voice, sounding slightly offended. I am the soul of Guy de Corvo, come from purgatory. Why? asked Brother Jacques, forgetting that he had not conjured the spirit. Why? repeated Gobi. I committed a sin in this place, said the voice. Elisana bowed her head and buried her face in the bed covers. What sin? asked Gobi, but there was no reply. Are you in purgatory? he asked. Are you being punished for this sin? Yes, the voice replied. During the day I burn in purgatory. At night I am sent here for my punishment, because this is where I committed the sin. Can you tell us who has been condemned to hell, and who has been saved? asked Brother Jacques eagerly. Gobi remained silent, but the spirit responded. I cannot tell you that, the voice said. God will not allow me to tell you that. Are you being punished right now? Are you in pain at this moment? asked Brother Matthias. Yes, replied the voice, and Elisana burst into a fresh flood of tears. I am burning, always burning. I am in the fire night and day, whether in purgatory or here. How can you burn without a body? demanded Brother Jacques. By the power of God, cried the spirit in misery. What can we do to help you, my son? asked the prior. Suffrages will help me, said the voice. Mass and seven penitential psalms. We will do what we can, said Gobi. But my son, we will have a much better chance of helping you if you confess your sin. The voice did not reply, but only moaned louder, matched by the equally distressed moaning of his wife. Brother Matthias tried to put a comforting arm around her, but she flinched away at his touch. My son, Monsieur de Caveau, said Gobi, was this the only place where you committed this sin? He had an inkling what sort of sin the man might have committed. No, came the ashamed reply. Then, my son, continued Gobi, why do you come here and torment and terrify your wife? Could you not have approached someone else, some priest or nun or member of the clergy who could help you? Look at what you're doing to the poor woman. Can you not spare her this torture? I cannot hurt her, said the spirit. I must come to this place every night. But I have done nothing to her. Any hurt is from her own affliction. At this, Elisana gave out a little cry and collapsed onto the bedsheets in a dead faint. Monsieur de Corveau? Are you still there? asked Gobi. The spirit did not speak. 
but all the brothers could hear a low moaning that echoed through the house and would not stop for the rest of the night. All through that Christmas tide, Prior Gobi and the brothers said prayers for the spirit of Guy de Corvo. Something still weighed on the Prior's mind, though. He could not help feeling that two souls were suffering in that house, one living and one dead, and that he should do more to help them confess their sins and find some kind of peace. And so, on the night before the Feast of the Epiphany, Gobi and his three companions returned to the house once more, to talk once again with the spirit, whose nightly visits had gone on unabated, forcing Elisana to sleep in the kitchen if she wanted to get any rest at all. This time, I think you should talk to the spirit first, Gobi told the widow. Speak with your husband, to ease his suffering and your own. The snow had melted and turned to mush, and a hard January rain was now falling outside the window. In the darkest hour of the night, the waiting men heard once again that low moaning sound, which seemed to well up from the tumbled covers on the bed until it filled the room. Elisana, once more in position in her bed but fully clothed, screwed up her face and summoned up all her courage as, with eyes squeezed tightly shut, she said, Spirit, I conjure you by the thrice-sainted passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, who guards my soul and my body, not to harm me. Unutterably sad, the voice said, I cannot harm you, and I do not want to. Are you sure? whispered Elisana, her voice barely audible over the wind and the rain from outside. But Gobi interrupted before the ghost could reply. I conjure you by the merits and the virtue of the passion of Christ, and by his blood, to tell me if you are a good spirit or a bad spirit. I am a good spirit, replied the voice as before. I am the soul of Guy de Corvaux. Gobi could not look directly at the source of the invisible voice, but he looked Elisana in the eyes as he said, My children, I think there is something unspoken here that is causing you both much pain and suffering. Only a full confession can save you, Monsieur de Corveau, from the flames, and you, Madame, from the horror and affliction that is plaguing you. And so, Spirit, I ask you again, what sin is it that you committed here that brings you back to this place for your punishment night after night? There was silence, and for a moment Gobi thought he had lost the spirit, when the low moaning started again. Was it a sin against your wife? the prior demanded to know. Finally the answer came, small and quiet. Yes. And Madame, the prior continued, still focusing all his attention on Elisana. Before he died, did you commit any sin against your husband? At first she could not speak. But she nodded, yes. In this room? In this bed? demanded the prior. Yes, she said finally. I was unfaithful to my husband. Not once, but several times. Including in this very bed, our marital bed. Monsieur de Corveau? Was this your sin also? the prior asked, finally raising his eyes to address the empty space on the other side of the bed. Yes, came the answer at last. Yes, I too was unfaithful, many times, and sometimes in this, our marital bed. 
It seems to me, piped up Brother Jacques, who always knew the most tactless possible thing to say, that the bed was only available to either one because the other had strayed into another's bed that night. Tactless, but impossible to deny. And so now, for their sins, they are forced to spend every night together in this bed, noted the prior. I take it you had not confessed this sin before you died, my son. I had not, confirmed the spirit. I have never confessed it to anyone before tonight, added Elisana. Well, my daughter, for you it is not too late, said Gobi. Come and make the sacrament of confession at the church tomorrow, and you can be given penance. As for you, my son, he continued, raising his voice a little, we will make what suffrages we can for you. I know you will, and you have already, said the voice. My time in the fire has been substantially shortened already. Thank you. I must ask you once more, my son, said Gobi. Why did you come here? Were you compelled by God to haunt this spot over all the other places where you committed the same sin? To torment your wife rather than your lover with your moans and your cries? I was compelled to be punished in a place where I had committed the sin, the spirit said. But I chose this spot in particular. Why? Why go to your wife rather than a clergyman or someone who could have helped you? Because I loved her the most, said the spirit. And with that, a cold wind seemed to sweep through the room across the faces of all present, and the voice was gone. Elisana did her penance, and the prior was as good as his word, saying mass for the spirit of Guy de Corveau every week. By the following Easter, the spring flowers were out, the ground had softened, and new life was in the air. Elisana slept alone in her marital bed, and was no longer kept awake by moans and cries in the night. Just once, on the night of Holy Saturday, the night of the Easter Vigil, the most important mass of the year, she heard something. She returned home in the darkest part of the night after the Vigil Mass, just as she had at Christmas, but with light spring soil under her feet rather than snow. She lay down in bed and turned to face the room, as had become her habit now. And just once, just briefly, she thought she felt a slight pressure on her back from the other, empty half of her bed, and a low voice whispered in her ear, Thank you. I love you. And with that, it was gone. The End Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the monthly podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. So this story was obviously chosen because it is set at Christmas time. Uh, it has been preserved in two different texts, one short and one longer. And there are slight differences in the exact dates between the two texts. Um, one of them suggests that the story takes place over 1323 into 1324. Um, the other one suggests it might be the following year. Uh, one of them suggests that, um, well, that the haunting sort of starts on Christmas uh, or that Gobi goes over on Christmas. The other one suggests he goes over on the 27th of December, but the haunting has started from the death of uh, Guy de Corveau on the 16th of December. Um, he's also called the longer form of the name Guillaume in one and Guy in the other. 
there's actually quite a lot of contradictory elements, even just in the short version of the story. Um, it contradicts itself several times, and there's a lot of contradictions between the two versions um, as well. Uh, so I've been fairly creative in just choosing something to go with. <laughs> For example, the ghost says he haunts the bedroom because he committed a sin there. Uh, and then Gobi says, why did you appear to your wife and not a member of the clergy? And he says, because he loved her the most. So, well, well, which is it? Because there aren't any members of the clergy hanging around in your bedroom. So it's very, very um, self-contradictory uh, as a text. Um, but it is most definitely set at Christmas. <laughs> there are common themes across the two versions. It's the same ghost. Uh, it's the, the unnamed wife. I had to name her. Um is the one who is being haunted in both versions, and Johannes or Jean Gobi, um, the prior, is the one who comes and talks with the ghost. So there are similarities. Uh, the spirit does very clearly say he's haunting the bedroom because of a sin committed there, which is never specified. The short version said it was a sin to or against or involving somehow my mother. Um, the long version just says it was a sin he hadn't done penance for while he was alive. So the long version is even less specific than the short one. The reference to the mother and sins against the parents is a bit difficult to work out what that's um, all about. Um, Jean-Claude Schmidt has suggested it was a sin of both the husband and the wife and that the guilt is weighing on the wife. He suggests that the, the wife is feeling this extreme guilt about this sin and that's partly why she goes to the prior. Um, he suggests that it was either something sexual or infanticide. Again, being in the bed, in the bedroom, would make sense, particularly some kind of sexual sin. There's a lot of things I could have gone for that people might have thought were sinful in the Middle Ages. Um, but in the interest of sort of keeping everybody sympathetic, but also keeping the prior sympathetic, um, I decided to make it cheating um, something that can be generally agreed to be not a particularly nice thing to do to your partner. Um, but I made them both cheat on each other. <laughs> and I've made it a sin he hasn't confessed. In the text, it's suggested that he might have confessed it but not done the penance. Uh, but I thought I'd simplify it, just say so he, he hasn't confessed it. Neither of them have. Um, infanticide, the, the exposure of an unwanted baby, would be another possibility. Um, but usually you would expose the baby outside. So again, the it depends whether you count the sin as the conception, but then you wouldn't because it's husband and wife. So why would that be sinful? Again, you'd have to be cheating for that to be a sin. Um, it could be the, the birth of the baby that would happen in the bed. Um, but the birth isn't the sin. The sin is exposing the baby, which would be outside. So <laughs> that's why I uh, I went with cheating. Um, I cut down on some of the conjurations a bit. There's a lot of conjuring. <laughs> and I, I've massively cut down on the conversation um, to try and sort of get to the key elements. Uh, and I threw in a couple of characters inspired by Ellis Peters' Cadfile books and the TV series starring Derek Jacobi that was based on them. So Brother Jacques is based on Brother Jerome from Cadfile. Brother Matthias is a little bit like Oswin from the TV series. Now, there's a lot of references to purgatory in this story. Medieval ghost stories do tend to be obsessed with purgatory. So purgatory is this part of the afterlife, which is neither heaven nor hell. It's where you go to be punished before you are allowed into heaven. 
so in medieval Catholic theology, uh, if you are super, super amazingly good, you might go straight to heaven. If you're really, really bad, you will go to hell. But most people who sin a bit, but not too badly, um, will go to purgatory and there they will be punished for their sins until they are sort of cleansed of sin and then they'll be allowed into heaven. And being cleansed by fire is the usual method. Um, this story is set in Alais in the south of France, um, say in 1323 or 1324. So this is a Roman Catholic um, society. This is medieval Catholic uh, culture. Uh, in the medieval texts, Scobie asks many, many, many theological questions about purgatory, about heaven, about hell. I've skipped most of them. I threw in a couple of them, <laughs> but I've skipped most of the just kind of theological questioning um sometimes the answers are god won't let me tell you that anyway um and things like that um sometimes Gobi even points out holes in the story so at one point he tells the ghost to make the sign of a cross and the ghost says i can't i have no hand and Gobi says well how can you hear if you don't have ears and the answer is by the power of god um so whenever a question can't be answered or there's a contradiction that doesn't make sense, the answer is either God won't let me tell you or by the power of God. Um, it's a bit like the trope of a wizard did it um, because God says so <laughs> is enough of an answer for any kind of logical holes. I have tried to paper over another unaddressed hole um, because Gobi asks why he didn't go to the mem a member of the clergy for help, but he already knows that he's haunting that place because that's where the sin was committed. And there is also a section where the ghost says that he appeared to his wife rather than a member of the clergy because he loved her the most. So I've tried to incorporate this uh, conversation to get to the part where he talks about how much he loved his wife while addressing the fact that he is also stated that he has to be there because he committed the, the sin there. Um, because I decided the sin was a fairly prolonged affair on both sides, I decided that it was a sin that had been committed in multiple places. So he had to be somewhere he'd committed the sin, <laughs> but it didn't necessarily have to be in that bed. He went to that specific place to be with his wife. But it was quite difficult working through the contradictions in the story itself. So obviously this story is set at Christmas uh, in the medieval period. So we've got some medieval Christmas traditions that I've tried to refer to, albeit fairly briefly, throughout. So they don't have Christmas trees as such, but bringing in evergreens like holly and so on into the house is a very old tradition, and that goes back to ancient Rome at least, if not further. Um, so I've mentioned holly, I mentioned mistletoe as well. The season of Christmas, um, not just in the medieval period, but theoretically, for anybody Catholic, it's, this is still the case. I grew up Catholic, so um, this was uh, in, you know, impressed upon me every year. Um, Christmas technically runs for 12 nights from Christmas Day uh, to the Feast of the Epiphany on the 6th of January, which celebrates the arrival of the Magi. That's Persian priests. Um, might, might know them better as kings. They became kings at some point in the medieval period. According to the Bible, they are Persian priests um, who followed a star, which makes sense because Persian religion is very interested in astronomy, uh, to find a baby or possibly two-year-old Jesus um, in Bethlehem. So the, the 6th of January is the celebration of the, the arrival of the Magi. 
And the 12 days of Christmas are Christmas Day to the 6th of January. Uh, those are also the 12 nights. Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night is named for the 12th night of the Epiphany. Advent before Christmas is a time for prayer and fasting. So Advent runs um, sort of the four Sundays up to Christmas. So from the 1st of December or from the nearest Sunday to the 1st of December. Um, and that is supposed to be like Lent before Easter. It's supposed to be prayer and fasting. Obviously, in the modern Western world, certainly in the UK and the US, um, there's a tendency for Christmas to kind of... It's sort of become the period from the beginning of Advent through to Christmas Day or New Year's Day. Um, and we've sort of shifted the season a little bit. Uh, but medieval France, Christmas tide is very definitely those 12 nights, Christmas to Epiphany. The date of the 25th of December actually comes from Mithraism, from the Roman period mystery religion dedicated to the Iranian god Mithras. Uh, it was his birthday. Um, according to the Bible, Jesus was born during lambing season. Shepherds aren't usually out all night watching lambs in December. Uh, <laughs> the, so the date of 25th of December is... Um, the Christians just pinched it from um, from Mithraism. It's also right next to the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which ran the 17th to the 21st of December, um, which is the winter solstice festival. So it was a good time of year to have this kind of festival. Springtime would be far too close to Easter. And Easter, uh, again, this is still the case in the Catholic Church, theologically speaking, Easter is the more important festival. Um in the kind of secular world, Christmas has overtaken it um, by a long way as a far more significant festival. But theologically speaking, the more important festival is Easter. Um, so you don't want Christmas too close to Easter. Now, by the medieval period, these dates are pretty firmly set. They don't have much memory of <laughs> Mithras or Saturnalia anymore, necessarily. The Feast of St. Nicholas is on the 6th of December. So in those parts of Europe that celebrate the Feast of St. Nicholas... That's when you might give gifts. This is still the case in some parts of Europe, like in parts of Germany. You give gifts on the 6th of December. Um, so St. Nicholas or Santa Claus, for any parts of Europe that celebrated him, that would actually be during Advent. That would be 6th of December. It would be a bit earlier. In Britain and France, um, pre the 20th century, uh, it was more Father Christmas in Britain or Père Noël in France, uh, who appeared in medieval mummers' plays. These celebrated the annual death of vegetation and crops and so on in autumn and winter, and then resurrection and rebirth in spring. He was a personification of Christmas, so he represents that time of year. The darkest time of the year also brings light and joy before turning towards brighter days. So Père Noël would have been the figure, um, but he really wasn't that big a thing um, in the medieval period in Britain or France. So no Father Christmas. There would often be carnival-like celebrations, um, what anthropologists call a world-turned-upside-down celebration. That's where there's an inversion of social norms. And that goes all the way back to Saturnalia. So in the medieval period, they wouldn't necessarily know that these traditions came from Saturnalia. They've probably forgotten what Saturnalia was. Uh, but they are continuing the same traditions. So in the Saturnalia, a king of the Saturnalia would be elected um, and slaves would have their masters wait on them if the masters were willing, not the other way around. Um, in medieval France, they uh, or in medieval Europe, they elected a boy bishop, um, 
which is like the king of the Saturnalia, choosing somebody who normally has little or no power and giving them power for a day and the boy bishop would marry people and things like that, but the marriages would only last for like a day. Uh, in France, uh, obviously where the story is set, they played dice games and a game called Soul, which is a sort of a cross between football and hockey. <laughs> it involves possibly a ball and some kind of curved stick. Um, and it is amazing how long some of these traditions can live without any memory necessarily of where they came from. Um, during the Christmas truce on the Western Front in 1914, British and French troops played football with the Germans. So clearly for the French, football or something like it has been part of Christmas for a very, very, very long time. Uh, in England, in the same period, you would get the servants' ball where the servants danced with the masters, just like the Saturnalia, where the masters would wait on the slaves. So often... People don't necessarily know where the traditions come from, but the traditions themselves can be incredibly long-lived. Although, sadly, we don't elect boy bishops anymore. That would be fun. And medieval ghost stories were sometimes connected with Christmas. Uh, we tend to think of ghost stories and Christmas as a Victorian thing, um, but there are a few medieval ghost stories that make specific reference to Christmas. There's a text by Otlo of St. Emeran, which is not currently available in English, but hopefully a translation will be available by next year, that says that on Christmas night, um, souls that the living have prayed for can rest or can visit the living because they will be temporarily freed from their torment in purgatory, which does directly contradict this story, <laughs> where the guy is being tormented very badly in purgatory the whole time. Um, but this was key to uh, the medieval church, and it's one of the things that eventually um, Martin Luther quite rightly pointed out was very wrong with the medieval church, um, that uh, they would say prayers and of course they would end up charging. The more money you had, the more prayers you could buy to be said to be in purgatory for less time and things like that. So this is why medieval ghost stories are so obsessed with purgatory. It's all about um, the church uh, telling people what they need to do so that they spend less time in purgatory. And invariably, this tends to involve, involve saying mass, it involves saying lots of prayers, um, but it quite often involves giving the church money as well. So if you are interested in any more of what I've talked about here, um, this story, unfortunately, is not available at the moment in English translation. It is available in French or Latin obviously. Uh, it was originally written in Latin, but it has been translated into modern French uh, by Marianne Polo de Beaulieu. Uh, so that is available from Amazon.fr, which is French Amazon, uh, in paperback. It is summarised in the English translation of Jean-Claude Schmitt's Ghosts in the Middle Ages. So this book was also originally written in French, but has been translated into English. Uh, and Schmitt summarises uh, this particular story, along with many, many others. Um, Medievalist.net have some nice details on medieval Christmas traditions, including specifying some regional ones. Um, and that was where I read about the game of Soul. And on the English Father Christmas, uh, if you have access to JSTOR, there's some details on him in Nancy Lou Patterson's article Always Winter and Never Christmas, Symbols of Time in Lewis Chronicles of Narnia in the journal Mythlore, volume 18, uh, number 1, pages 10 to 14. I hope you enjoyed this uh, medieval Christmas ghost story. Um, 
bit similar to the Victorian ones, but with a lot more emphasis on purgatories than any Victorian ghost story. Uh, We will be back uh, next month with another ancient, medieval or early modern ghost story and some commentary. Merry Christmas, everybody. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. (laughs) 